So we're in Luke 19, verses 28 to 44. So let's uh, hear from God's word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So today we're looking at the, uh, what's traditionally called the triumphal entry. And uh, this is Luke's version of it. And it's, it's not really the best name for um, Luke's version because, if you, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus didn't actually enter Jerusalem in this passage. He was walking towards it, well, riding towards it, but he doesn't quite get there in this passage. Uh, but he is heading that way, and I don't know if you can imagine the scene, but it would have been very loud, uh, a very exciting event to be at. Uh, if you've ever been to a parade in the city, uh, perhaps a uh, grand final um, parade, you know, where they put the team in convertible cars or on the backs of utes, and they drive them down the street, and the, the streets are lined with people cheering for their team. And uh, the, the crowd will eventually follow the team all the way up to the platform where the captains uh, make these speeches. And uh, that, it, that's really what this would have looked like. People everywhere. Uh, people cheering uh, for Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem. But there's a very big twist in this um, procession because it begins with a great crowd cheering for Jesus. But did you notice how the, the procession ended? It ended with the very one they're cheering for weeping. He's weeping for the very city that he's heading towards, uh, for Jerusalem. And the contrast of the emotions in this passage, it could not be more stark. On the one hand, you've got a crowd bursting with excitement, bursting with praise. And then on the other hand, you've got the very one at the center of it all. He's breaking out in tears. And so the contrast in emotion. 
Uh, but we can actually learn a lot about Jesus from both sides of this, from the way the crowd reacts, the way Jesus reacts. We learn a lot about Jesus. We learn about, from this passage, why he has come. We learn what he is trying to achieve. We also learn about his heart for people. And that's something we will need to, to look carefully at uh, because Jesus, he, he has a way of overturning our expectations and overturning our uh, perceptions about how things should be. And so we need to listen carefully, we need to make sure we've understood him, that we get him, that we get what he's on about. And so let's look at this passage. Uh, the first thing we learn here is that Jesus is the king who has come. That's the first point, the king who has come. And uh, you notice the account, it begins on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. So uh, it's at Bethany and Bethphage. And uh, th that's about 3Ks, a little bit over 3Ks from Jerusalem. So does everyone know where um, Seaford Beach is from here? It's that way, 3Ks. And so that just gives you a sense of um, the distance, where they're at. And at this point, Jesus, he sends two of his disciples into one of the villages uh, to get a young donkey that's tied up there. And uh, they're to untie it and bring it to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, look, if anyone asks you why are you untying it, or, you know, why, why are you nicking off with our donkey? Um, all you need to say is the Lord has need of it. And uh, that's like a, a password, uh, unlocks the donkey. And they can take it to Jesus where they um, seat him on it. Uh, and uh, he rides it into Jerusalem. And just as Jerusalem comes into view, they get to this like a high point and the city comes into view and that's the point where the crowd goes crazy. They go ballistic, praising Jesus and uh, praising uh, God. And uh, we can see there in the way the crowd reacts and also the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all include the triumphal entry as part of their presentation of the life of Jesus. And so that tells us this must be a significant event. It must be significant. And so the question is, what is the significance? What is this event teaching us about Jesus? And uh, there are three elements in the story that point to the significance of what's happening. And they're three elements that all have connections to the past, you know, connections to Old Testament history. And so if we look at the connections, we'll realize what the significance of uh, this event is. So first, you've got the donkey. Uh, that's one point of connection. Uh, the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, that's the direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9. You know that passage I read earlier? Zechariah 9, verse 9, let's look at that. Uh, where Zechariah, he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. <clears throat> so that is a, it's a prediction of the coming Messiah. Okay, the Messiah, he's the king in the line of David. He's the son of God. And if you read through the Old Testament, the Messiah, he has, uh, he has attributes that can only be attributed to God himself. And so this powerful kingly figure is coming into the world. He's coming in to restore everything that's broken, to make everything right again. And the sign of his coming, 
according to Zechariah, is that he would come into Jerusalem on a young donkey. And that's a very striking prophecy because the prophecy is about the Messiah coming. This is the one who's going to overturn all evil and wipe out all injustice. And so you'd imagine such a powerful king coming, how would he turn up? You would expect him to come on something like a war horse, you know, to come in power. And yet what does what is, uh, Zechariah say? Humble and mounted on a small donkey. <laughs> a donkey? That's not going to win any wars. Uh, this would be like, um, imagine if um, the Western nations get involved in um, Ukraine. Uh, if they do, they're not going to turn up in a fleet of Suzuki Swifts. That's not going to help. They're going to come in with tanks and um, Bushmasters and uh, the big artillery. <clears throat> but Zechariah, he predicted the Messiah is coming and he's going to come in as Suzuki Swift. And it made no sense. How does that work? It really did make no sense until, of course, it was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Because when Jesus came, he, his coming, is, it's really in two parts. And if you look at the parable before this passage, you'll see that Jesus taught on that in this context in Luke, that he's, he would come once, he'd go away, and then he would come a second time. And so now we see in the coming of Jesus, his first coming, it's not in power and for war, but rather for peace. He's come to bring peace, the peace of salvation. And a lot of the actions uh, with the donkey, very similar to what happened to, to King Solomon. When Solomon was crowned king, uh, what they did with Solomon that was at a time of peace, Israel had no enemies at that time. So they put Solomon on a donkey and he rode into Jerusalem to be crowned as king. And it was just a sign of, look at this, here's a nation in peace. And now it's all happening with the true king, the true king of peace, the Lord Jesus. And so by riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, he was claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. The king has come. Uh, the second element we see in this story is the coats. Notice in verse 36, as he rode along, they spread the cloaks on the road. That's the ancient version of rolling out the red carpet. Uh, because this, this person on a donkey, he's far too worthy to walk on ordinary ground. You need to roll out the carpet. Uh, in this case, they, they would rather have a donkey walk all over their clothes than for this exalted king to trample on ordinary ground. And so again, it's pointing to the fact that he's a king, that he's worthy of all praise. And, in, and again, there's an Old Testament connection. The same thing happened to Jehu when he was crowned king. The people all got out there, lay down their coats. So again, it's saying here, the king has come. And then the third element is the location. So in verse 37, let's look at that. At the start of that one, it says, as Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice. Okay, so when, when you look at a map of Jerusalem, um, actually, I noticed the ESV Study Bible has an illustration, and it's the best one I've ever seen, because you can really see the Kidron Valley just on the um, west side of uh, Jerusalem, uh, sorry, the east side, and uh, you've got the Mount of Olives. To get to Jerusalem, you've got to go down into the Kidron Valley and then right up again to enter the city. 
And so that Luke draws our attention to this bit where Jesus is going down, down the Mount of Olives. And it's highly likely that he's drawing our attention to that, to the procession as they go down the Mount of Olives, to remind us of another procession that happened in the past that went up the Mount of Olives. Can anyone remember King David when he was dethroned by Absalom? And he had to escape from the city. What happened? There was a massive procession of people with David, not cheering, not praising, but rather crying and hanging their heads in shame because David had to flee. Why? Because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And so that was a big procession of shame heading up the Mount of Olives, away from the city. And now we have the complete reverse of that. David's greatest son, the one who didn't ruin his rule through personal failure. And he comes again with a big procession, but they're coming back. It's the reverse. This is the king who comes in righteousness and truth, the one who will reign and will not ruin his reign by his own sin. And so we see what this event is all about. The donkey, the coats, the location, it's all there to show us that this is the true king. This really is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who will save his people, the one who will establish the throne of David forever and will reign forever in righteousness. That's who this is. This is the king, King Jesus. And uh, that might sound like a nice story to you, um, but maybe some of you are thinking here, okay, that's all great. That's, you know, a Jewish Messiah came. Big deal. What does that have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you. If we go back to that prophecy in Zechariah 9 about the king on the foal of a donkey, the very next verse goes on to say, let's have a look at verse 10. It says about this king, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from where? From sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. What is that saying? It's saying that the Messiah was not just some king of the Jews. But this is the king of everywhere. This is the king of everyone. This is the king of the universe. And he has come. This is the king, the very one who created the universe, who has now stepped into his creation and come back to reclaim what is rightfully his. This is who this king is. And so in light of this king's coming, every single one of us here today have a choice to make. Will we submit to the king? Will we give our lives to King Jesus or will we resist him? We will, will we reject him? See, they're the two options. There's, there's no middle ground. There's no, um, I kind of like Jesus, but I'm not going to submit my life to There's none of that. With Jesus, it's always all or nothing. And because he is the king, then the only response, the only one that matters is, will you submit your life to him? Will you say to Jesus, my life is yours. I'm here to do your will. That's because that's who Jesus is. He's the king. And everything Jesus has to give you, everything he has, everything that he is, like saviour, shepherd, wonderful counsellor, prince of peace, the way, the truth, the life, the brother, the friend, everything that Jesus is, it can all be yours, but only if he's first your king. 
So that's the first thing. The procession shows us that the king, our king, the king of this universe, he has come. He's come into the world. Now, the second thing we see here, though, is that it's very easy to misunderstand Jesus. It's very easy to get who he is and yet not get it. And we see that in, in the reactions of two groups. There's two groups of people that um, Luke records who are involved here. Uh, on the one hand, you've got the crowd of disciples, and then you've got the Pharisees. And what's interesting about the crowd of disciples and the Pharisees is that both of these groups get who Jesus is. They get the point of the donkey and the coats and the location. They can see it all. You know, they know their Bibles. They can see the connections. And so they get it, and yet at the same time, we'll see that both of these groups don't really get it. They don't fully understand. And it's good for us to have a look at these and to think through, uh, are we in the same boat? You know, do we get Jesus, but, but don't get him? So let's have a look at the crowd of disciples. Uh, they, they get who Jesus is. We see that in verse 37. Uh, because it says that you know, when he went down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the crowd, this is, this is the crowd of disciples. So you've got to get your head around. These are the people who know Jesus quite well. Uh, they've been with him or who knows how long, some of them longer than others, obviously. But, but th this is the crowd. John actually tells us this is the crowd of people who were at Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so they've seen with their eyes someone come out of a tomb after being there for long enough to be decomposing. <laughs> they've seen that. And I don't know if you can imagine what that would be like to witness that, but that would stick in your memory. They've seen that, and so that, that's the people who are here, and they're now seeing Jesus, you know, the king. And so, of course, they're, they're jumping out of their skin with excitement, praising God, look what he says, for the mighty works that they have seen. And they, they use, they don't just praise with any old words, they're, they're Israelites, and so they use the praises that have been drilled into them ever since they were little, they use the Psalms. And there was a special group of psalms called the Hallel Psalms, uh, which uh, have this word hallelujah over and over, and that means praise the Lord. And these were special psalms that they, they had sung every year on, on their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem for Passover. And they take one of these psalms, Psalm 118, verse 26, and in the psalm it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But notice the way the, um, these, the crowd recites that phrase. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see what they've done there? They've interpreted the psalm. Blessed is he. No, no, blessed is the king. This is the king. And so they're, they're now seeing that this psalm, it was always about the king. But now they're seeing it fulfilled right before their very eyes. And so the crowd, they get who Jesus is. They understand, yes, this is the Messiah. This is the King. He's finally come. And yet, at the same time, they don't get it. They don't really fully understand what it's all about. Not yet, anyway. 
and they actually can't understand fully at this point. Uh, John tells us about this crowd in John 12, 16. He says that they, they wouldn't understand what was happening until after Jesus was glorified, okay, until after he'd risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. Then it would all make sense. But between this point, the procession, and Jesus being glorified, what's going to happen? What's in the middle? It's almost like the Kidron Valley. <laughs> Something bad is going to happen to Jesus. And he's going to go into Jerusalem. What's going to happen? He's going to be hung on a cross. And uh, if you could imagine, like, here's the disciples. They're all cheering for their king. They're thinking, this is great. He's going to free us. He's going to make life good again. And yet all those hopes and dreams that they had invested in Jesus are about to be absolutely smashed when they see their Messiah hung on a cross, lifeless, no longer breathing. That would have just shattered that dream. And they would have gone home very, feeling pretty sad. Um, but there's a sense in which their dreams had to be shattered. Do you know why? Because all of their dreams for Jesus, all of their hopes for him being the Messiah, all of their hopes were way too small because their hopes for freedom was from freedom from the oppression of Rome. See, at this point, the Israelites, they were under Roman rule. They had to pay taxes to Rome. They absolutely hated that, hated the way everything was controlled by Rome. They wanted to be free. And so for them, the Messiah meant freedom from Roman oppression. And yet, is that what Jesus came to do? Is that all? <laughs> it's almost like he's saying, that's, that's too little. You've got no idea. What is the freedom that Jesus came to bring? What, what is the oppression that he came to liberate us from? It's not big nations or dictators or bad um, politicians and things like that. The freedom Jesus came to bring is the freedom that lasts forever, the eternal freedom, which is to be set away from the ultimate oppression, which is the oppression of sin and the death that comes as a result of sin. See, that's the real oppression. You can be free from dictators and empires and things, but you're still going to die. You're not free until you're set free by Jesus, the freedom of eternal life. That's what he came to bring. But to do that, he would have to go to the cross. He would have to go and be hung in the place where all of our sin, you know, everything that we've done against God would all be put on him and he would be punished in our place. That's the only way he could do it because our sin is so bad that God must punish it. And yet God's love for us is so great that he punished his own son in our place. And this is something that the disciples, this crowd of disciples, they couldn't understand that. Not at this point. And even after Jesus had risen from the dead, he, he spent 40 days uh, meeting with them, explaining things. And on, on, and on that day when Jesus was about to send into heaven, the disciples said to him, it's in Acts 1 verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> See, they're still thinking small. It wasn't until the third person of the Trinity was sent the Holy Spirit. And when he came, then the lights came on. And then they finally realized, ah, the Messiah, he's come to free us from sin. He's come to, to give us eternal life. 
And then they realize that this is the king who triumphs through tragedy. This is the king who wins the victory by dying in our place. That is, that, that, there you go, that's a king. That's actually the salvation that Zechariah predicted. That's how you can understand Zechariah talking about the king coming in humility to bring salvation. Now it all makes sense. And they realize the king that he is. Um, but there is an application for us here. And that is, uh, we, we can actually be like the crowd. You know, we can look to Jesus and think he's going to fix our lives up. If we put our hope in him, he will come and give us peace. He will fix uh, the things that are troubling us, uh, perhaps some uh, ongoing struggle or, or a difficult relationship, something that's causing real burden. And we think, you know, Jesus will fix that. And then it doesn't happen when you want it to and you think maybe he's not all that he's made out to be. Maybe you feel like he's let you down. But what we see here is sometimes Jesus needs to smash down the hopes and dreams that we have because they're too small. Because we set our hopes on the here and now, you know, fix this problem, fix that problem, when Jesus is trying to bring something much bigger. You know, freedom for all of eternity. That's what he has to give. And so sometimes he has to break down the, the small hopes and dreams that we have so that we'll seek after the real prize, which is salvation. And so I wonder, do you get what Jesus is on about? Do you get what he has come to do as king, to be the saviour? Do you get it? That's the first lesson from the crowd. Now, there is another type of person watching on and another one that we need to learn from. And that is the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, they're also there in this big crowd, but they're the ones standing on the side with their arms folded and angry looks on their faces. They're, they're disgusted with what's going on. They can't stand the noise that they're hearing. And see, the Pharisees, they get what's happening. They know their Old Testament. They know uh, donkey, coats, location. They know what it's all saying. And yet they cannot stand it because they refuse to accept that Jesus is the Messiah. They will not have it. And uh, verse 39, you know, they, they get so angry that some of them um, go up to Jesus and say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And that's a funny saying from Jesus. But what he's saying is that even if he does silence the crowd, it doesn't mean there's going to be silence. Because he is the king. And he is the king who rules over all of creation. And eventually, all of creation will join in the chorus. Uh, there's some psalms, like Psalm 98, that talks about God coming into the world, the king coming. And it says that when he comes that the, the rivers will clap their hands, the trees will dance, the, the mountains will be leaping with joy because he's come to free the world from the curse. And so eventually that's what the rocks are going to do. They're going to be crying out. The question to the Pharisees, are you, are you going to join in the chorus? But they don't. They will not have Jesus as their king. And their response actually typifies the city to which Jesus is heading towards. 
And in the last little section, let's look at verses 41 to 44. Here Jesus, he responds to those who reject him. Okay, because many reject him. Many say, I will not have you as my king. And Jesus talks about that, about those who refuse to turn to him. And uh, this is where the, the triumphal entry, it actually becomes more of a tragedy. It's a tragedy of unbelief. So verse 41, <clears throat> it says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, have known on this day the things that have made for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. So here's Jesus weeping. There's a few times that talk about Jesus weeping, like at when Lazarus was dead, it says Jesus wept. But here, here we have him again weeping, and it's, it's contrasted with the crowd who are celebrating. But Jesus wept, and why did he weep? He wasn't weeping because people were rejecting him. This is not a case of Jesus feeling sorry for himself, thinking, you know, oh, why, why won't these Pharisees believe in me? Poor me. That's not what he's doing. He's not rejecting because people were rejecting him. He's weeping for people who were rejecting him. Weeping for them. Because he is the saviour. He's the only hope of salvation. And yet they're rejecting him. They're saying, no, thank you. We'll do it our way. They don't want him. And so here we have this amazing insight into the heart of God. What does God think about those who reject him? Well, we see it in or on the face of Jesus. The tears rolling down his cheeks. We see the compassion that he has toward those who have hearts like stone. See, Jesus, he came to bring salvation. He went to Jerusalem. This is a place where they had the greatest privileges. If anyone should have known the time of God's coming, it should have been them. And yet they said, no, we don't want you. And Jesus was weeping because for them to reject him, that's to miss out on the only hope there is of being saved from the judgment to come. And that's what Jesus goes on to talk about in verses 43 to 44. And he foretells, he foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says at the end, look at that last line, he says that it's going to happen because you did not know the time of your visitation. The time of your visitation, that's an Old Testament phrase that's used all the time to talk about when God shows up. And when God shows up, you need to be ready. You need to take notice. And in Jesus, God did show up. He's come. And what did, what did the Jerusalem do? Killed him. They got rid of him. Or so they thought. And uh, they rejected God. So what will God do to them? God will reject them. And that literally happened in AD 70 for Jerusalem because Jesus spoke of its destruction. He said one stone won't even be on top of another. And uh, there are, um, well, if, if you read Josephus, I haven't read it, but apparently he goes into great detail about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And I've heard that it says that the streets were like just like a pool of blood and uh, no rocks were left on top of another. They tore everything down to make a real statement about the power of Rome and what happens when you resist. But Jesus, he, he, what he's saying here, what happened to, to Jerusalem 
That's really just a picture of what's going to happen to the whole world when Jesus comes again. Because in Jesus' first coming, he came on the foal of a donkey. He came for peace. He came for salvation. But Revelation 19 depicts him coming again, not on a donkey, but on a war horse. And he's coming for judgment. And all of those who resist him, there will be judgment. You will be condemned. And so I just want to finish with two applications tonight. I have an application for those who reject Jesus and one for those who receive him. And for those who are rejecting Jesus, do you see God's compassion for you? Do you see that in the, the tears of the Son of God? Weeping for you who are missing out on the only hope that there is. That has to move your heart. You can't look at that and not feel something. Here's the Son of God weeping for you because you're missing out. And uh, Jesus does say that if you'd known of the things that make for peace, good, but no, no, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He says that about Jerusalem, that they've actually missed the opportunity. And it's like God saying that there's a window open, the window of opportunity is there. If you don't take it, that window can be closed and that's it. You've missed it for all of eternity. And so this, this is saying to you, you know, the window is open now. Today is the day of salvation. So take hold of Jesus. Embrace him as your king. Stop resisting him. Stop saying, this is my life. I'll live it the way I like. Thank you. No, no. Turn to Jesus. Receive him as your king. But there's another application, and that's for those who have embraced Jesus. And I hope that's all of you here. If you've embraced Jesus, what a saviour he is. I hope you're encouraged today to think, wow, this is the king. This is my king, and he has come for me. He's come to bring salvation. And you know, when you watch him riding to Jerusalem, what's he doing? He's riding to the cross. He's determined to go to bear our sin, to take it away forever so that we can have peace with God. What a great saviour he is. But at the same time, I want you also to look at his face. Look at the tears for the lost. And what do those tears tell us about how we should think about those who are still lost? Should not we feel the same sort of compassion? Shouldn't we not grieve for those who are, who are rejecting Jesus? You know, think of your family members who are not Christians. Think of those, your friends, your workmates, who, who couldn't care less about the coming king. Should not we grieve for them? Uh, in, in college, I had a, uh, a theology lecturer, which um, some of you probably know, Douglas Milne. And uh, Douglas, his favourite book of the Bible was um, the book of Luke. And he wrote a commentary on Luke, which I've got, and I've been making use of it, and it is a wonderful commentary. Um, but he, he makes this application uh, about Jesus weeping, and I found it very striking. He says this, Any theology that leaves Christians indifferent or unfeeling toward the plight of the unconverted is fatally flawed. Okay, do you have room in your theology for compassion for the lost. Okay, do you feel that sense of 
I need to go to them. I need to tell them about the Saviour. Is that part of your thinking? Because any theology that leaves Christians indifferent toward the lost, that's fatally flawed. And he's spot on because that's, that's what it means when we see we have a king who actually weeps, a king who loves the lost and weeps for them. And so that ought to change our hearts. I mean, do we know Jesus? Do we get him? Here's one way we know we get Jesus. We share his heart for the lost. We want to go and tell them. And so there you go. That's the message of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. It's all about the king who has come. And he's the king that you must embrace. And he's the king that you must go out and tell the world.